Good morning, EPC Church family. I hope you are all doing well this Sunday morning. Don't forget that throughout the week, you can connect with us in various ways through Facebook and the many groups that we have. The first is our EPC uh, Church page that you can go to for all our church updates. We also have EPC Kids Ministry page and EPC Student Ministry page where we post things regularly throughout the week for parents, children, and students that allow us to connect together in various ways throughout the week. Don't forget as well, uh, we encourage you to, to continue sending us your prayer requests uh, so that we can continue lifting up the needs of our church and our community uh, at our corporate prayer time at 11 a.m. every Sunday morning. Well, that's all I have for now. So enjoy the rest of this service and uh, we can't wait to see everyone real soon. Hello, everyone. This past Monday, June the 8th, our provincial government surprisingly announced that churches are now able to gather for services at 30% capacity. While the decision to close churches came abruptly, the path to reopening will require much more detail and attention to ensure the safety of our congregation as we comply with outlined health measures. The Admin Council and staff have been working diligently to create a plan for reopening. An email was sent out to the congregation on Friday, June the 12th, outlining what reopening will look like under our current circumstances. A link to a survey was included in that email. We are asking that each person, 16 years of age and older, please complete a brief online survey as soon as possible in order to provide your feedback to us in this regard. We want to ensure that we hear your concerns and take all matters into consideration in creating a safe environment for worship. If you did not receive the email, please contact the office and we will send the information to you. If you haven't filled out the survey yet, please do it as soon as possible. We really need to hear from you soon. In the meantime, we will continue with our online Sunday format. Thank you. Good morning, Evangel. Let's worship together. on my lips from the moment that I rise to the one who rescued me and brought me life. Praise awaits you at the dawn. Praise awaits you in the night. With the heavens I will sing and live Glory be to God, the Spirit, all glory to the One, glory to the Lord, Almighty, glory to the King, Most High, glory be to God, forever, all glory to the on my lips 
from the moment that I rise to the one who rescued me and brought me light. Praise away to at the dawn. Praise away to in the night. With the heavens I will sing and live to chapter 6, verses 6 to 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. May God bless his word to our hearing. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, in case you didn't know, next Sunday is Father's Day. And um, maybe you really didn't remember that because you have a bit of a covid brain and have lost all track of what day it is anyways even in the month but if you didn't remember you better get busy um but wait until the service is over 
For those of us who have been aware that that day is coming, there has probably been some conversation among family members or maybe just internally trying to come up with the perfect gift idea for dad. Maybe he's been trying to tell you what he wants, but you haven't been listening or picking up on the clues anyways. And you find yourself saying to yourself, what does he even want? That's the million dollar question, right? What does he want? Well, today in our scripture, similar words were uttered about God. His people are pictured here as saying, what does God want? Thankfully, in this case, we're going to get an answer straight from God. Our verses today are an imaginary conversation of sorts between God and the nation of Israel, as spoken by the prophet Micah. Chapter 6, verse 8 is commonly referred to as the social justice passage, even though a lot of scripture is um, surrounded by or talks about issues of social justice. So who is this prophet of social justice? Well, you may know him as the prophet who foretold in chapter 5, verse 2 of the same book that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. But you may not know very much more about him. Um, Micah was a prophet who was actually a contemporary of Amos and Isaiah in the 8th century BC. And although we don't know much about him, there are a few things that we do know. First off, he was a native of Moresheth, which was a small town just west of Jerusalem. Second, he was a commoner, a farmer from the countryside. Micah understood the poor because he was most likely one of them. Micah was a prophet who spoke against the rich, who oppressed the poor, and also um, he also spoke against the prophets who falsely prophesied that there would be deliverance from the Assyrian invasion to come. His prophecy here doesn't end as a lot of prophecies do with um, an announcement about impending disaster. Instead, he gives an opportunity for a change of ways. To Micah and to God, the exploitation of the poor and the powerless was one of the most horrific crimes of the day. When we think of a hero of the faith who spoke strongly against exploitation and injustice, we think of Micah. So what about the people of his time? Well, at the time of this writing, Israel was actually at the height of their wealth and material prosperity, but at their lowest in terms of moral and spiritual poverty. Although the rich were becoming increasingly richer, God's people had violated the expectations and the requirements of their covenant with God. The poor were becoming poor. Oppression of those with no power by those who held all the power was rampant. It was a time of farmers with debt having to mortgage their farms to pay their debts to rich men in Jerusalem and Samaria, men who used this to extract their farms from them and eventually force them to be tenant farmers. It was a time of lending to the poor at a high interest rate and then asking for even the very clothes off someone's back if they couldn't make payment. Justice and mercy were nowhere to be found. The people of his day were religious, but not godly, and there is a big difference. True religion brings about a right standing between us and God, yes, but that always flows out into how we treat others. In the verse just prior to our scripture today, God reminds the people of his faithfulness to them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt and being with them ever since. He's saying that he has kept his end 
of the covenant. He has been faithful to them, but have they been faithful to him? Have they kept their end of the covenant? The people hear what God is saying, and instead of understanding how truly unfaithful they are, they wonder what they can do outwardly to make things right again for themselves. Keep in mind that these verses are rhetorical questions and answers, not an actual conversation between God and the people. It's Micah who is speaking the whole time. The people basically ask the question, what does God even want? And it's interesting to note the progression of their questions. First, they ask if God will be satisfied with burnt offerings of one-year-old calves. What gifts can we bring you, God? We'll bring them. Burnt offerings were prescribed in the book of Leviticus for the remission of sin. Every Israelite was fully aware of this. And the only offering where the entire animal was burned, leaving nothing behind for even the priest to eat, was the burnt offering of a calf. Calves who were a year old were considered to be the most costly offering because of their monetary value. And then they turn from quality to quantity. How about 1,000 rams or 10,000 rivers of oil? The Israelites are really upping their game here. They're basically saying, I'll give you whatever you want, God. Name your price. Interestingly, though, only someone extremely wealthy could even offer this type of gift. So even in their offer, they are acknowledging the imbalance of resources. Finally, they ask, should they sacrifice their firstborn child? Would offering God the very most precious thing they have satisfy him? How dare God accuse them of failing to appreciate his faithfulness? Look what they're willing to give him. What more could he possibly want? But the sacrificial system of the day was not ever supposed to be an end in itself, and they were missing the point. They didn't want to change. They felt they were making perfectly acceptable offers. It was God who should change, relent, and accept their many offers. They were insinuating that God can be bought. What they had done was change the covenant into a contract. All this managed to do was veil the depth of their sin behind what looked like very holy activity. But God can't be bribed no matter how good the offer. He sees the heart behind the offer. Hearts that as Matthew 23 verse 23 say have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You see, the answer to their sin problem was not in the quality or the quantity of their numerous or personally sacrificial sacrifices. It goes much deeper than ritual observance. The problem was not their act of giving. It was in their heart. What they needed was a heart change. The people gave three suggestions and now God gives three of his own. And they are miles apart. Just as the people of Israel went from small to large in what they were willing to offer God, God goes from small to large in what he expects of them. Verse 8 is actually written in a reversal of sorts, and I think it was done this way to make a point. You want me to act justly? I guess I can do that. Check. Love mercy? Hmm. That one is harder. I love receiving it. But it's much harder to give, especially to people I don't think deserve it. But I'll try. Check. Walk humbly with you? Oh boy. Now there's the crunch. That requires submission of my life to you. I'm not sure I can do that. But you see, 
The last one is actually the first because it's the foundation for the other two as they build. What God is about to say will sum up the legal, the ethical, and the spiritual requirements of pure religion. So let's look at them in reverse. The first one is to walk humbly with God. That's the spiritual requirement. Walking humbly is not self-effacement. It's not putting yourself down or feeling that you're worthless. It's not even about being mostly a humble person. It isn't found in self-deprecation, but in God appreciation. True humility is not found in thinking less of yourself. It's found in thinking more of God. And humility's natural path is never oppression. It will not lead to a lack of mercy or behaving in unjust ways. Quite the opposite. When we have a proper understanding of the awesomeness of our God and who we are only because of him, we will naturally walk in humility, mercy, and justice. There go I, but for the grace of God, you know. Why would we ever not act justly? Because we believe we are more important than others. Why would we ever not love mercy? Because we have forgotten that we are recipients of it. Walking in humility comes from total surrender to God's will and realizing that relationship with him is not about personal sacrifice, but about having a heart for him and for those he created. Psalm 51 verse 17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You see, walking humbly with God needs to come first because it's the motive for the other two. When we have properly submitted ourselves to the daily leadership of God's Spirit, we naturally find ourselves to be people of mercy and justice. It is only in Christ that we find the power to walk out our faith in practical terms for a hurting world. Secondly, love mercy, the ethical requirement. The word used for mercy in Hebrew is the word hesed, and it is used throughout the Old Testament to refer to the unique love God has for his people, a love poured out on them through the keeping of his covenant with them. God's love is always a faithful love. The Israelites had broken their covenant with him. In verses 3 to 5, God contrasts his faithfulness with their faithlessness. He reminds them of all he has done for them. He has kept his end of the bargain. In order to restore covenant, it's not sacrifice that is needed. It is faithfulness. They are, in essence, called to return to him and mirror his own faithfulness. This is what just living and mercy look like. To whom much is given, much is required. He says he has shown you what is good. In other words, he has already shown you. Leviticus 19 verse 18, when speaking about the law, says, But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the opposite of what these faithless Israelites were doing. Faithful living before God means that we extend the mercy shown to us to others. And we can expect God's mercy in our own lives only to the degree that we have extended it. James 2 verse 13 says it well, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Are we deserving of God's mercy? Of course not. Remember that the next time you are dealing with someone you don't feel deserves yours. 
without mercy, our just, justice will be harsh and inflexible. With mercy, it will be like a cup of cold water to a thirsty traveler. Being filled with the Spirit means to walk in mercy. We are never more like our Heavenly Father than when we are showing mercy. St. John Chrysostom said, Mercy imitates God and disappoints Satan. Don't you want to be a follower of Christ who daily disappoints Satan? Third, act justly, the legal requirement. What does it mean to act justly? In these biblical times, to act justly would have been understood as living with a sense of right and wrong and living that out in all dealings with your fellow man. To teach what justice is in this passage, Micah tells all the ways that Judah was being the opposite, the ways they were being unjust, coveting fields, stealing them, oppressing others through corruption and law-breaking, those who had power taking from those without any, local judges who did not practice justice, hating the good and loving the evil. So conversely, to act justly is to not do any of those things. It means being fair in all of your dealings, treating people as equals, not taking anything that isn't yours, even the credit, not cheating anyone, even the government, being just in all your actions and attitudes, for we know that attitudes inform actions, standing up for what is right, speaking out against injustice, True justice is the natural outflow of loving our neighbors as ourselves. In conclusion, allow me to make two points. First, just like the Israelites of Micah's time, it's easy to fall into a pattern of performing external duties to obtain God's favor. They would do anything other than change their heart. We are perhaps not so different at times. God wanted his people then to return to the standards of justice and mercy called for in the covenant. And he wants the same for us. We must protect the poor, the foreigner, the widow, the oppressed, those who have faced systemic injustice or who have been marginalized in society. It's easy to reduce religion to nothing more than holding to a set of beliefs, following a set of rules and regulations, performing certain rituals, observing special days, or reciting certain prayers. It's much easier to work on our outward acts because looking inward at who we really are, at the person God sees when he looks at us, well, that can be tough. Inward change is a lot more work. Second, the sign that we have had that inward change, that heart change, is how we treat others. Simply, they will know we are Christians by our love by our mercy, by our acts of justice. Without love as the motivation, we're just gonna be that clashing gong or that clanging cymbal. Yes, we need to love God first and foremost. It's not enough in God's eyes to merely act justly and love mercy. Justice and mercy aren't a means of salvation. That being said, they sure are the litmus test of whether what we have is real or not. On the flip side, I can't just humbly submit to God myself but not care about justice for others. I can't love mercy for myself but not extend it. It's not an either-or situation. It's both. Justice and mercy are meant to be the standard for those who have already submitted to walking humbly with God. On our own, we can never truly live justly or mercifully. 
not at all times and with all people. We need the Spirit of God to empower us to walk these things out as we walk with God. To the Israelite, justice and righteousness before God, these things couldn't be separated. It wasn't possible. They were one and the same. We cannot be indifferent to people made in God's image if we claim to walk with him. Dr. Gary Milley says, we cannot lay claim to a good relationship with God while maintaining a bad relationship with the less fortunate. Injustice and people being marginalized has always been a sign of people's hearts not being right with God. It's important to stand against the status quo. Even if we are not the ones oppressing, our silence can make us complicit and further the cause of evil. Dr. Milley goes even further. He says God's spiritual leaders must not be silent in sinful situations lest they support sin. We need people filled with God's spirit to stand up on the right side of justice. Acting justly cannot be simply a private matter. We need to also stand up to oppression wherever we find it and help deliver the oppressed. There's no way around it. When we fully submit to God, we will emulate his mercy and his justice. Folks, our world is in so much turmoil right now. People are hurting in so many different ways. And many have caused hurt even in what they have said in response to what they see going on. And if our reaction to oppression and injustice, to the hurting of the world, is to merely say, the world needs Jesus, then might I suggest that Jesus is saying back, but I need you in this world. Our God has been so faithful to us. He has shown us mercy and grace beyond measure. We don't need to be like the Israelites in this passage, wondering what it is that God even wants. He has already told us. Let us be people who act justly, who love mercy, and who walk humbly with our God. May God bless you.
Temptation comes my way, and when I cannot stand, I fall on you. Jesus, you're my hope and stay. When I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. Jesus, you're my hope and stay. for your constant faithfulness to us. Forgive us for the times when we have not been faithful to you, God. For the times when we were more impressed or more concerned with impressing you outwardly than working on our inside and, and what you see and, and the, the ways in which we live out our faith in the ways in which we treat other people, God. We want to be those people who daily disappoint the enemy by the way that we show mercy and and act justly and walk humbly with you god would you help us to do that god would you give us a heart for others lord may we extend the mercy that we have received we ask this in jesus name amen